This message by Jeff Perswell, titled, A People of God's Presence, is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the first main session at our Worship God 2006 conference. Jeff is the dean of the Sovereign Grace Ministries Pastors College and serves as a pastor at Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland. A recent article from the Associated Press begins this way. Dude, you've got to read this. A linguist from the University of Pittsburgh has published a scholarly paper deconstructing and deciphering the word dude. Contending it is much more than a catch-all for lazy, inarticulate surfers, skaters, slackers, and teenagers. To decode the word's meaning, Scott Kiesling listened to conversations with fraternity members he taped in 1993. He also had undergraduate students in sociolinguistics classes in 2001 and 02 write down the first 20 times they heard the word dude and who said it during a three-day period. He found that the word taps into nonconformity and a new American image of leisurely success. Anecdotally, men were the predominant users of the word. But women (laughs) sometimes call each other dudes. (laughs) That just makes me laugh. Never heard my wife call another lady dude. Um, But it happens. Less frequently, men will call women dudes and vice versa. But that comes with some rules. According to self-reporting from students in a 2002 language and gender class included in the paper, quote, men report that they use dude with women with whom they are close friends, but not with women with whom they are intimate, according to the study. His students also reported that they were least likely to use the word with parents, bosses, and professors. (laughs) Which comes as a huge surprise, I'm sure. An admitted dude user during his college years, Scott Kiesling said the four-letter word has many uses. In greetings, what's up, dude? As an exclamation, whoa, dude. (laughs) Commiseration, dude, I'm so sorry. (laughs) To one-up someone, that's so lame, dude. As well, this is my favorite, as well as agreement, surprise, and disgust. Dude. Kiesling said in the fall edition of American Speech, a journal, that the word derives its power from something he calls cool solidarity, an effortless kinship that's not too intimate. In other words, close, dude, but not that close. That's a that's good work if you can get it, isn't it? Um, Well, the topic that Bob has chosen for this conference, as he mentioned, is the presence of God. As I was thinking about that, it is a common phrase, is it not, in discussions and articles and debates about modern worship. It's a phrase we use often. It's a phrase we use casually. But what is in our minds 
when we use the phrase, the presence of God? Is it, is it a mere distant wish, but something you've never really experienced personally? Is it, is it something that we have to strive to attain for, something we're always grasping onto with, with closed eyes and clenched fists? Or is it something we take for granted? Something we treat, to use the words of the article, with a cool solidarity. Something that speaks of an effortless kinship. It's not too intimate. You're going to hear a lot in this conference. And you're going to learn a lot, I trust. And you're going to benefit a lot. You're going to gain a lot of ideas and perspectives that will inform your participation in worship and your leadership of others in worship. But tonight I want to begin simply by bringing your attention to one key idea. And really more than than an idea, it, it is a biblical reality that should inform the way we think about God. And it should inform the way we relate to God, both in our corporate experiences of worship, in our individual congregations, as well as in our individual lives before God. It's a truth that's woven through the entire storyline of the Bible. And it's this. It's a simple truth. God's eternal purpose is to dwell among a people He has made His own. I'll repeat it. God's eternal purpose is to dwell among a people He has made His own. His purpose, according to Scripture, is not simply to create a people. It's not simply to govern or rule a people. It's not simply to save a people. Although, obviously, that's a massive part of God's purposes. It's it's not simply to receive worship from a people. His purpose includes all these things, but it transcends these things as well. In His creating, in His ruling and governing, in His saving, in His receiving worship, God has purposed something specific. He has purposed to dwell among a people He has made His own. And the message I'm going to give tonight is really preparatory for the rest of the conference. Um, Bob has invited some fine men, Mark, Mullery, Craig Cabanis, Randy Alcorn himself. They, they, he has invited them to prepare feasts for you all week long, and I have no doubt they will be feasts. He's invited me simply to come in and lay out the napkins and lay down the silverware. Because it is preparatory. Um, but informed of this truth from Scripture, God's eternal purpose... There's other things God has purposed, sure. But God's eternal purpose is no doubt to dwell among a people He has made His own. I think being informed of that truth and seeing that truth woven through the fabric of Scripture, I trust that we will be better prepared for the feasts that await us this week. More importantly, when we grasp this truth, we can be filled with anticipation. You can be filled with anticipation for your corporate gatherings of worship next Sunday. We can be filled with anticipation for the singing and worshiping we will be doing together this week. We can be filled with anticipation 
for rolling out of bed after we've been here too late tomorrow morning. This truth can and should have a transforming effect on our singing, on our worship, on our leading, on our living. And so let's ask God that this truth would do just that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how rich it is to stand side by side with a throng like this, raising our voices in praise to you. How rich, Lord. What a gift you have given us. And Lord, what a gift you have given us in your precious word. Your very words. Father, I pray that tonight you would speak to us through these words. Speak and give us ears to hear. I pray you would, you would cause our hearts to explode in wonder and amazement at your word, Lord. And Father, as I stand here tonight, I am just so very grateful for Jesus Christ who made this night possible. Jesus, I thank you for your active obedience in fulfilling God's perfect law that I could never fulfill. Lord, I thank you for your passive obedience in bearing on the cross penalty for my sins that I could never bear. It's on the basis of what you have done on the cross that we approach you. And we approach you gratefully and we approach you confidently that you would speak. Thank you. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Excuse me. Well, I've been asked to, as Bob said, sort of survey the Bible on this topic of God's presence. Thanks a lot, Bob. Give me a text. How about the Bible? Um, (laughs) Things you do for friends. But the way we're going to do this to sort of expose this truth from Scripture, I'm going to suggest five images from Scripture. Five pictures or five images that appear in the pages of Scripture and that, that appear as the Bible storyline unfolds and they appear in a progressive way. And we're just going to see how those pictures unveil in, in an ever-increasing way something about God's purposes to dwell among His people. So, here we go. Image number one, a garden. Image number one, a garden. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. It is impossible to overstate the importance of the first three chapters of Genesis for there, in the first few pages of your Bible, the foundation is laid for everything else that's going to follow in your Bible. As you are, I'm sure, aware, Genesis 1 recounts God's creation of everything that exists, the heavens and the earth, beginning with light and progressing onto the, the pinnacle of creation, mankind. And then immediately after this, in Genesis 2 chapters, four, or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 2 verses 4 and following, we have what's called the, the second creation narrative. Um, 
It is complementary to the first. The first uh, creation narrative, all of creation is in view. And so it's, it's, it's looking broadly at God's creation. The second creation narrative, chapter 2, the writer f- narrows his focus and focuses more specifically on this, this crown of creation, mankind. And so that's what we find in the first couple of pages here. What do, what do we find? Well, after God creates man in chapter 2, verse 7, we learn about a garden. So read with me, chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. Excuse me. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So, we have a garden. What kind of garden is this? Don't, I don't know where you're from, but don't picture Aunt Martha's tomato patch. Um, don't picture your sorry attempts to make something grow in your backyard that you always give up on. D- don't, don't picture that sort of thing. Um, the picture we get is, is really wonderful and implies a few things. I'll just list a couple for you if you want to write them down as bullets. First of all, it implies safety. Uh, the, the very word garden is not what we would use for, you know, a tomato patch. Uh, it, it comes from a verb that means to protect or to enclose. And so uh, this is an enclosed, protected area. Think of a lush, protected parkland or a, a royal forest or a beautiful orchard or something like this. Um, Adam didn't sort of randomly and haphazardly kind of land on Earth in a space capsule. Whoop, found myself in Eden. No, God as the text says, placed him. And, and that word is, is, means a very intentional setting up in. He placed Adam in the garden. God very carefully prepared a habitation for him. You got that? Secondly, it's a place of provision. This is truly, of all places, a garden of delights. In fact, that's the, what the word Eden means. It means delight or, or pleasure. Uh, verse 9, look at that. It speaks of uh, fruit that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. This language is sensory language. It speaks of, of plenty and richness and, and pleasure. I mean, God didn't give Adam vitamin supplements. You know, here's the perfect recipe for living. And here's beeswax. And here's protein shakes. And you know whatever else you need. Um, no. And praise God. He gave him food. I love that. Um, he gave him food that is rich and diverse and beautiful to the sight. And it tastes great. It's a place of relational harmony. We won't go in depth at that. But we see right after this, chapter 2, 18 and following, God provides Adam a mate perfectly suitable to him. Finally, it's a place of divine companionship. Divine companionship. Look over at chapter 3, verse 8. 
Chapter 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, here we get to the greatest characteristic of this garden. This garden wasn't only a place of rich provision. I mean, this wasn't some sort of adult playground, you know, full of fun stuff. No, fundamentally, this was a sanctuary. What's a sanctuary? A sanctuary is a sacred place. This, you know what the garden was? The garden was a temple. That's what the writer intends to convey. The garden was a temple. It was a, what's a temple? It's a place where God and man meet. There's indications here that, that that's what he has in mind. In verse 8, it says that this was located in the east. In the Bible, the east is always the place of life and hope. In the ancient Near East, temples always faced eastward. And we know this temple faced eastward because after Adam and Eve were cast out, chapter 3, verse 24, the cherubim stand guarding the guarding the, the, the garden on the east. So they're not just guard, they're not just guarding the trees. Nope, keep off the grass. No, they're guarding the way to God. And these are cherubim. Don't think cherubim, kind of cherubs, angels floating around like you put on your bathroom walls. The cherubims are guardians in the Bible. They are guardians of God. Just like those cherubim in the Holy of Holies. So they're guarding the way to God. Even the language of walking. Chapter 3, verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. This word, the same verb, is used later to describe the reality of the divine presence among God's people. Leviticus 26, 12. If you're taking notes, write that down. You can turn to it later. God says this. It's a verse that, it's a phrase that appears over and over in Scripture. I will walk, it's the same verb, I will walk among you. And will be your God and you shall be my people. So when the Bible says God is walking among his people, what he's talking about is the divine presence near to his people. The divine presence with his people. So this is not just a garden, folks. It is a garden temple. It's also on a mountain. It's a mountain garden temple. That's implicit in chapter 2 verse 10 because there is a river flowing down. And that becomes explicit later in, uh, in the book of Ezekiel. I think it's Ezekiel chapter 8 talks about the mountain of Eden. Now, why it's in a mountain? Well, mountains symbolize man's connection with God. Sinai, Mount Sinai was the place of God's greatest Old Testament revelation. The restored temple of Ezekiel chapter 40 is on a mountain. People are continually encounter God on mountains. So it's a garden. It's a temple. It's a garden temple. It's a garden temple on a mountain. And what does all this tell us? Just this simple image. Well, it tells us this. Here in the foundational stage of redemptive history, we have a pattern of the kingdom of God. And we have a revelation of God's purpose God's ultimate purpose for mankind. Unhindered fellowship in the presence of God in an unspoiled environment. That's where it all began. That's where it all began. Unhindered fellowship. 
with God in the perfect, unspoiled environment. God in Eden, in this garden, God is present with his people. This is not a children's story. This is what we were created for. You know, in times of worship, I'm sure you've experienced it, your heart your heart thrills and you sense God's presence, but it's not like you sense God's presence and go, hmm, it's not like a good meal. Oh, that was good, let's leave. No, you, you, your heart just thrills and you think your heart's going to burst and you just long for more and you just can't get enough. Have you ever experienced that? Do you know why? It's because you were created for that. You don't just happen to be a worshiper, worshiping type. You don't happen to be an expressive personality. No, you were created for that. It's in your spiritual DNA. This communicates not only what you were created for, it, it communicates God's heart for you and for me. Did you, do, you, do you think of God this way? God wants, He desires, He's purposed from all creation to dwell with His people, to dwell with, with me. Does that take your breath away? That's God's heart for you. It's not your idea, it's God's. What's interesting about chapters 1 and 2, God is the main actor throughout. Chapter 3, man starts acting, then it gets bad. Chapter 2, God is the actor. He's the one who creates. He's the one who prepares the garden. He's the one who positions man in the garden. He's the one who reveals himself to man, who instructs man, who initiates fellowship. This is so critical to remember when so much modern literature on worship talks about what we do, doesn't it? And what we do to get to God. No. God is the initiator in worship. So at the very outset of the story, this image, the garden, image number one, really establishes and it illuminates for us God's purposes, the Creator's purposes for mankind. To have a people among whom He can dwell. That's image number one. You got it? hard part of this is sort of filling in the gaps between the images, but we'll try to do it quickly. Um, you know the story, right? This idyllic, perfect situation is devastated, isn't it? It's devastated by the entrance of sin into the world. Adam and Eve reject God's authority, and the results are immediate. The results are destructive. The results are pervasive. The results are tragic. And, and the most devastating... The most devastating, besides the earth being cursed and women having pain in childbearing and, and relational conflict between male and female and, I suppose, poison ivy and mosquito, I, I don't know. But the most tragic consequence, divine alienation. This harmonious relationship with the Creator, between the Creator and the creature, is shattered. And Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. That's, what, that's what's in view there. They don't just sort of lose out on good food and you know, climate control and, I don't know, free water sports. It, no, it's the presence of God they're losing. But the story doesn't end there, does it? 
God continues to take initiative. There's Enoch. Yes, there's Noah. Praise God. There's Abraham. And then God makes this incredible promise to Abraham to make him into a great people and to give him a land and to make him and his people uh, a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So, so much has been lost. So much tragedy, but yet so much promise because God is faithful. And you recall what happens. Abraham's descendants, they they multiply, don't they? And so Abraham has a son and and other sons and then they grow and grow. It's good, but they end up in Egypt and they're slaves. It's bad. Um, Joseph dies and the Pharaoh comes up who doesn't know Joseph. I mean, as soon as it says that, you're just going, oh no, it was looking good, but this guy didn't know Joseph. And so, you know, you know, it's not, things aren't looking up at this point, but it does get good because God delivers them. He raises up Moses, doesn't he? Yes, and he, re- he reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush. And he, he delivers the people from, from Pharaoh by the hand of Moses through mighty deeds, etc. Um, and then God gathers this people that he was gathering for worship. And he brings them to Mount Sinai. And he, he forms this ragtag, motley crew, this, this loose federation of tribes and clans. He forms them. He forges them into a nation. And he gives them identity. You will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Yes, right now you're a ragtag bunch of just, you know, loosely related people. No, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are going to represent me to all the people in the earth. Incredible calling, isn't it? And then he gives them astonishing privileges. He gives them his word, doesn't he? They receive God's law that is the constitution of Israel. It spells out what it means to to be part of the people of God. But they're given something else. They're given something else. And this leads us to image number two. Image number two is a dwelling. A dwelling. Turn to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25, God brings Israel to Sinai, Exodus chapter 19, God comes down on the mountain, Uh, Moses goes up on the mountain, there is this incredible theophany, there is clouds and thunder and the people are frightened and it's an amazing sight. And God delivers the Ten Commandments. And after He gives the Ten Commandments, the people say, don't, don't say anymore. They, they can't handle any. Apparently they heard, they heard this. We can't handle anymore. Talk to Moses. Moses, you tell us what God said. And then God gives Moses another three chapters of laws. This is what's called the Covenant Code. These are, these are another block of laws that are going to guide Israel's behavior. And then they ratify the covenant. So they get, they, they gather together and they all say, we will do this. So they are agreeing to the terms of this covenant, which God has initiated. And then we come to chapter 25 and God gives these amazing instructions. Look what he says. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from, for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twisted linen, goat's hair, tan skins, tan, excuse me, tan ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps. Spices for the anointing oil, for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting. Remember onyx? That was back in Eden, wasn't it? 
And stones for the setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them, here it is, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So in addition to God's law, this great revelation of himself, Israel is promised something staggering. God's very presence. Incredible. At the the very establishment of this nation, the very establishment of Israel as the people of God, this reality, God's presence, this reality becomes a fundamental characteristic of the nation's identity. From now on, they would be marked not by a flag that they wave, not by a motto that they you know, print on their money. They are going to be marked by God's presence. To be the nation was to have God's presence. It's that simple. Look over a few chapters to Exodus 33. Exodus 33 is a great verse, a great section that reinforces this. This is after the golden calf incident. Amazingly, they, uh, but shouldn't be surprising knowing our own hearts. Uh, Moses is up on the, on the mountain too, too long, apparently. They don't know what's happened to him, and so they make the golden calf, and then Moses comes down and he throws down the, the, the tablets, which don't think of Moses just really getting ticked off and, oh, we screwed up the tablets. No, he was, that's what you do when a covenant has been broken. These were the terms of the covenant, and he's, he's showing, no! Now, he may have been, I'm sure he was angry, but they have broken this covenant, and so the covenant documents are trashed. That's what happens. And so they come down and 3,000 are, are killed. And, um, but God, amazingly, keeps promising people stuff. He keeps giving them promises. And he, he sends them on to the promised land. He's, but he, he, makes this, he, he makes this adjustment. He says, my angel will go before you, but I'm not going. I'm not going. And then look at what Moses' response is in Exodus 33, verse 12. Exodus 33, 12. This is Moses' response. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For, listen to this, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? This is it. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? You see what he's saying? This is what makes us different from every other people on the face of the earth. There's only one thing that makes us different. It's not our gold. It's not our skill. It's not our technology. It's not our nuclear arsenal. No, your presence with us is what makes us different than every other nation on the earth. That's what it is. To be Israel is to have God's presence. That is the fundamental factor that would distinguish God's people from others. That's what it means to be God's people. Now, you've got to understand, as you read through your Bible, this is an entirely new development in redemptive history. It's an entirely new development in human history. Uh, Never before has God dwelt with man. 
Now, man had unhindered fellowship with God in the garden. But God didn't live in Eden. No indication he did. No, he walked there. God met powerfully with Moses on Mount Sinai. But God didn't live on that mountain. It became the mountain of God when God came down. It's not like Mount Olympus, which was the the home of the Greek gods. The Canaanite gods had their own mountains as well. No, God didn't live on a mountain. God would appear to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Jacob, you know, remember the vision of the, the ladder from heaven. Sets up a stone at Bethel. That's not God's house. But now, God says, make me a tent. So tabernacle is. Make me a tent. I'm going to live with you. And so they built God a dwelling. They built the tabernacle. And God takes up residence in their midst. It's incredible. Even the location of the tabernacle points to this. After the tabernacle was constructed, the the, temp, the tabernacle of God, God's tent would be in the middle. And the twelve tribes would arrange their tents around this. Four tribes on each side of, of the tabernacle. And so everyone had their tent. Everyone had their space. And guess whose tent's in the middle? God. Isn't that incredible? God's tent. It's right over there. It's where he lives. It's our God. It's incredible to me. That's exactly where a king's tent would be located as he leads his people into battle. Right in the middle. So now the divine warrior. You read verses that talks that call the Lord, you know, Lord Sabaoth, God of hosts. That's a that's a military term. He's the God, he's the divine warrior, as we as we sang tonight. God's marching with them in the promised land. And so when they march on this journey, they pick up God's tent and he marches right along with them. What an incredible promise. And when they enter the land, then this tabernacle will give way to another dwelling, right? The temple. When the people are on the move, God is on the move with them, living with them. When the people settle down, God settles down. When... When God gives the people rest, then he takes up his own place of rest with them in the temple. Just as an ancient king, upon conquering a land, would then, first of all, build a royal house. So when they conquer the land, God builds, has his royal house built. The temple of God. And so, the second image, a dwelling. First a tabernacle, then a temple. It advances the plot of the story. And it reveals more to us about God. Now, what does it reveal? I just want to mention two things that this reveals, that this shows us as the story unfolds. First of all, fundamentally, these dwellings were the mark of God's presence with His people. And we've mentioned this. Like never before, God has dwelled with His people. In doing so, He identifies with His people. His people are are nomads, wandering God's going to wander with them. Isn't that humble? When the people settle down and rest and build houses and plant vineyards, God's going to settle down with them.
Secondly, though, in addition to God's presence with them, the dwelling, these dwellings also point out something else. God's transcendence. Because while God was living with them in these dwellings, it is not unhindered fellowship. The tabernacle is divided. And there is a curtain cordoning off the most holy place. Access to God is not open to just anyone. You don't just stroll into the tabernacle, pull back the curtain, hey, God, no. Only priests. In the tabernacle, there was a section for laity, a section for priests, and then the most holy place for the high priest alone. No. As loudly as these dwellings spoke of God's eminence, they also spoke of God's transcendence. God is with them. But there is still a barrier that shields them from God's glorious presence. God dwells with them, yes, but there is an entire system of sacrifices that emerges. You see, God's presence, you know, we sing, we dare, laugh, oh great. God's presence is not always good news. God's presence will kill you. Remember Aaron's sons offering, best translation I think, unauthorized fire? Do you remember the warning? Don't let anyone step on this mountain, God says from Mount Sinai. Lest anyone who touches the mountain will die if I've not authorized it. Do you remember Uzzah who reached out his hand as the tabernacle was, was being carried to steady it of all things? Executed. Let's get a little close to home. You remember Acts chapter 5? Ananias and Sapphira? Right here. In the front of the church. Executed. What has been happening in the book of Acts up to this point? Well, God has come. Acts chapter 2. God is dwelling among his people. When God, Oh, it's great. Miracles. Gospel. Proclamation. Yes, God dwelling with his people is great. But God dwelling with his people also demands holiness from his people. God's presence is dangerous. It's glorious, but it's dangerous. So in this dwelling... The story moves on. It's great news. God is imminent with his people. Never before has God dwelt with the people, but he is transcendent. And the people are shielded from his full presence. That's image number two. Well, the story moves on. Soon after the glorious dedication of the temple, do you remember that? Uh, This period in which Israel really reached its pinnacle. Uh, Even the nations are being blessed as the Queen of Sheba comes and and, and glorifies God for all of the blessings and the riches and the the wisdom. So this is the pinnacle uh, of, of God's blessing upon the Davidic monarchy. But right after that, look at the contrast between 1 Kings 10 and 1 Kings 11. It's just incredible. 
Oh, it's tragic. It's sad. And so soon, idolatry and, and compromise sow the seeds for the nation's destruction. And, and not long after this, the kingdom is divided. And then the northern kingdom is, is conquered and destroyed by, uh, by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And the southern kingdom survives this, but then it's defeated by the Babylonians in 597. And so the first exile starts. And then just 11 years later, uh, the, the conquest is complete and Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is decimated and the people are completely taken off into exile. And you look back on these events, they can sort of seem like a history book, can't they? Um, you know, mildly interesting perhaps, not, not really personally relevant. But put in the context of, of the story, everything we've read before, putting, put in the context of the story, these events are. Hey, th- this, this, wasn't, this wasn't a national tragedy. For the people of Israel, this was a theological catastrophe. It's not just sad news. It's a theological catastrophe. The te- think about what we've said. The temple, this place where God said He would dwell among His people, this, this presence that would distinguish them from all the people on the earth, it was destroyed by Gentiles. Exile. My goodness, exile. A fate worse than death. We think, well, you, you know, you go away for a few years, someone lives in your home, too bad, come back, rebuild. No, exile. You... You're, you're ripped off from the land. And, and this land is not just real estate. It's the promise of God to Abraham. The land is the theater of God's glory. It's the place where Israel would spend their years encountering God and in a relationship with God is lost. God's eternal purpose was to dwell among a people, wasn't it? We read that. We, we know the garden. The pattern established in Eden. The, the appearances to the patriarchs. The theophany at Sinai. The pillar of cloud by day. Fire by night. The tabernacle, the temple. It's all lost. It's just lost. But it's not over. It's not over. Through the prophets, God sparks Hope with some promises. His people, yes, they will return from exile. And a few decades later, Israel does return. The city is restored. The temple is rebuilt. These are expressions, absolutely expressions of God's faithfulness. But you know what's clear to everyone? (laughs) This doesn't live up to the promises. It's good, but... Remember the... Stories, the old men weeping, (laughs) thinking about the old temple. It's not the same. It's not the same. But the prophets keep talking. God keeps promising. There's more to come. The best is yet to come. And so the last prophet, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, the last prophet of the Old Testament says this, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, listen to these words, whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And that brings us to image number three. We've had a garden. We've had a dwelling. Image number three, a person. 
but so much more than a person. Turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Familiar words. In the beginning, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. The Word was God. The Word becomes flesh. But it doesn't just become flesh. What does verse 14 say? The Word becomes flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. Do you know what the word literally means? The Word tabernacled among us. The Word set up a tent among us. Do you see what he's saying? Just as the former tabernacle would be set up and the tribes of Israel gathered around it, four on each side, well now God is back and He set up a tent in our midst. He dwelt among us and and we beheld His glory just as they saw the glory filling the tabernacle. We beheld His glory, but not of a fire, glory as of the only Son of God. God set up his tent again. Once again. What's he saying? Once again. See, John knows the rest of the story. Once again, God is dwelling with his people. Once again, it's happening again. But now, in a much different way. Now, in a much more authentic way. Now, in a much more personal way, is God dwelling among his people. Do you remember the tent... Where, as Exodus records, Moses, it says Moses used to speak with God face to face as with a friend. Well, now they're seeing God face to face. And so the Apostle Paul will write a verse like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In the face of Christ. This one, this, this one who came, and this is, this, is the, this is the message of the book of John. It's the message especially of the prologue. This one is the ultimate revelation of God. God has revealed himself through clouds and fire and words. But now he's revealing himself in a person. 
And we beheld his glory. This is the ultimate self-disclosure of God. Right here. That's what he's saying. And God has returned to his people. He tabernacled. Look at John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 18 and following. So the Jews said to him, 2.18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? This is after Jesus cleanses the temple. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Isn't John honest? (laughs) It's not like they got it at the time. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered, yes, he said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Not only is Jesus the fulfillment of the tabernacle, he is the fulfillment of the temple. He is indeed the new temple. Now, the place where God dwells among his people is not a building, it's a person. Now, the place where God and man meet, which is what temples do, is not a structure. It's a person. Now the place of sacrifice is not an altar in a building, but it's his own body. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up. And at his death and the rending of his flesh and the spilling of his blood... The veil of the temple that separated the Holy of Holies. Do you recall what happened? It's torn in two. It guarded the presence of God. It's a good, great to have curtains like that. But it's torn in two. What is it saying? Access to God's presence. It was, it was shielded, but now it's open. It's open for everyone through Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew uses dif- different language, but communicates the same reality as John. Matthew chapter 1. Quickly, I'll just start reading. This is the angel's appearance to Joseph, verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20. But he, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. Look at Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Very end of the book. The Great Commission. 
Matthew 28. Jesus is raised from the dead. He's gathered his disciples at Galilee. And when they saw him, verse 17, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So at at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book, Matthew brackets this presentation of the Savior with material that, that sheds light on everything in between. These bookends sum up the identity of Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the one who will be with us forever. And, and he came, as the angel told Joseph, to die for his people's sins. He came to die. He came to absorb the wrath of God that we deserve. He came to suffer the due penalty in his flesh to, to remove the certificate of debt against every one of us. To, to reconcile man to God so that God could dwell with man. Because God never could dwell with man until sin is taken care of. Never has God dwelt more powerfully, more authentically, more gloriously with man than in Jesus. Image number four. We've seen a garden. We've seen a dwelling. We've seen a person. Fourth image, a people. A people. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. One Corinthians three, verse start reading in verse sixteen. Well, let's go up to verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So an architectural metaphor is established. Now it gets filled out in verse 16. Do you not know that you, and that's a plural, you, the church, At Corinth, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now something's happened, hasn't it? Christ, the new temple, has has died and risen and now ascended to the right hand of the Father. But as he promised in John chapter 14, he said this, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will send another helper to you, meaning another helper just like me 
to be with you forever. So Jesus fulfills his promise that I will be with you always, even to the ends of the age. It's just not going to be in my flesh. I'm going to send another helper just like me who will continue my ministry among you, but in a much more broad way to everyone. And so Jesus keeps his promise. And so when that happens... Acts chapter 2, when that happens, when the Holy Spirit is sent and it gives birth to the church and it fills believers, now what has happened and what is reflected in these verses is that the church in union with Christ, indwelt by the Spirit, the church now becomes the divine sanctuary. And the word temple there in 3.16, there's two words for temple. There's a word that, that speaks of all of the temple and all the temple precincts. And then there's a word, naos, that, that speaks of the sanctuary, the most holy place. And that's what's being spoken of there. In union with Christ, and that's very important, indwelt by the Spirit, the church is now the temple of God. R.C. McKelvey comments on this amazing transition. God no longer dwells with his people in a sanctuary which they make for him. He dwells in them and they are his temple. Real quick, 2 Corinthians, next book, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. The same idea appears, but, God, but Paul d- draws upon the Old Testament. He combines a number of verses to make clear that this is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament has anticipated. This is not some new deal. This is not some thing that came out of the blue. All of the Old Testament has been looking forward to this. 2 Corinthians six sixteen. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, recognize this verse, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so Paul here combines a verse we mentioned earlier, uh, Leviticus 26.12. He combines it with uh, Ezekiel 37. 27, I think it is, to make the point that the new temple expectations of the, of the Old Testament, the Old Testament spoke many times about a new temple, a future temple. Well, now Paul makes clear those promises, that new temple is, well, it's here. This is the temple of God. All the promises of the Old Testament that look forward to a renewal of the people of God, that spoke of the sending of God's Spirit, that spoke of new hearts and and new life and and God dwelling among His people and God once again dwelling with His people, all fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. David Peterson writes, Even more so than the tabernacle of old, The Christian congregation is God's dwelling and should therefore be, quote, set apart for its sacred purpose. What are the implications to this? Oh, there are many. I'll mention just three very briefly. Number one, Christ, Christ must be ever central in the church. Don't don't get confused. Christ remains the new temple. It's not like it's been transferred. Christ remains the new temple. We become 
the new temple by virtue of our connection with Christ and our indwelling by His Spirit. So we won't turn to them, but there are other verses in the New Testament that speak about the church as God's temple or God's building. And they will say things like this. Christ is the cornerstone of that building. You recognize that? Ephesians 2, 20. This building is growing up. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. Uh, uh, Back in 1 Corinthians 3, it talks about no man can lay a foundation, speaking to the church, other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So the moment the church gets disconnected from its foundation, the moment the church loses its cornerstone, it's not a temple. Christ must remain ever central in the church because we are God's temple only by virtue of our union with Christ. Don't, Don't get that wrong. It's very important. Number two, a second implication. Christ's presence in the church demands the holiness, demands holiness in the church. Christ's presence in the church demands holiness of the church. That's Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 6. He's saying, you are God's temple. God dwells in your midst. So get rid of your wickedness. Get rid of your idolatry. Why is there such a thing as church discipline? Well, it's to care for that sinner. It's to to win that sinner. It's to restore that sinner. Yes, but that's not the only thing. The other part of church discipline is, this is God's temple. And God's temple is holy. And God is jealous for the holiness of His people. Think that has application to a worship leader? I think it might. Number three, a third implication. God is uniquely present when His people are gathered. God is uniquely present when His people are gathered. I'm sure Craig will touch on this tomorrow. Uh, But when the church gathers in worship, God is uniquely present. It is true that all individuals, all, all Christians individually are temples of the Holy Spirit. Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians 6. But by far, the, the emphasis in Scripture, by far the emphasis in the New Testament is that the, the corporate body of believers, the church, the gathered church, it is the corporate reality that is the temple of God. So yes, when you get up and have your devotions with God, yes, the temple indwells you. Yes, God dwells with you. Yes, you can fellowship with God. Absolutely. But something unique happens when God's people are gathered together. What an incredible reality. Think about this. The church is, is, is that created entity which is nearest and dearest to God's heart. The church is where God on earth in this period of salvation history, it's where God has chosen to place His name. Here He uniquely acts. Here He uniquely dwells. So when you stand before others leading worship or playing instruments, you're not just standing before some random gathering of individuals. You're not simply leading or motivating or exhorting or just a group of people just happens to go to your local congregation. You're standing before the very dwelling place of God on earth. You're leading God's treasured possession among whom He has chosen to dwell 
apart from all the other people on the earth, you're standing before them, leading them and responding to God. That is an awesome, that is an awesome task. That is a sober task. That is a glorious task. And the worship that you're leading them in is pointing, is pointing to something. And that brings us to our last image, image number five. That a garden, a dwelling, a person, a people, number five, a city. A city. Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Everything that we... Don't keep your Bibles together. Everything in your Bible has been leading up to this point. Everything in your Bible has been preparing you for the scene presented at the end of the book of Revelation. Here we have the consummation of God's purposes. Here is the climax of everything that has proceeded. You will not get this scene if you haven't read the story. So let's read chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. Have you heard those verses before? And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels. And on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Verse 15, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, 
The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, and so forth. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. There's a surprise at the end of this book. In the wake of defeat and destruction, Israel was looking for a new temple. Intertestamental literature is full of hopes for a new temple. Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48 speaks of a new temple. Now we've seen that Christ himself is the new temple and church as his body and is an extension of that temple. But, but then we come to the end of the story, we come to the consummation and no temple. Surprise. <laughs> Runs completely contrary to the, all the hopes of Judaism. Why is there no temple? Well, we read it. The Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. There's a temple. It's the Lord God and the Lamb. Note some of the details of the chapter. The the measurements of the city, length and width and height, are equal. It's a cube. It's a cube. It's only one other cube in Scripture. You know where that cube is? It's the Holy of Holies. Now the whole city is one giant. Holy of Holies. Cities made of pure gold. The Holy of Holies was completely overlaid with gold. There's some differences. Both the tabernacle and the temple had Divisions which restricted access to various people. As we mentioned earlier, some open to laity, some open to priests, some open just to the high priest. In the New Jerusalem, no divisions. The temple that Ezekiel saw had many walls throughout. No walls in the New Jerusalem. Why? The whole city is open to all God's people who serve Him and see Him face to face. In the old temple, there was an altar. In the new city, there is no altar because the definitive sacrifice has been accomplished once for all on the cross. And the Lamb who was slain is now at the center, worshipped by all. 
The scene really brings us back to the beginning. Brings us back to the first image. Back to Eden. The new heavens and the new earth. Recall the first heavens and the first first earth created in Genesis chapter 1. Instead of Adam and Eve in the temple, we have Christ, the second Adam, and His heavenly bride, the church. As Adam and Eve fellowship with God in the garden, so do the redeemed fellowship with God throughout the new Jerusalem. Like the river of Eden which flowed out, so does the river of life flow out from the throne. The tree of life is there as well, but now it's on both sides of the river. And so mankind returns to paradise. They don't just return to the old paradise. It's a new paradise. Face-to-face fellowship not experienced since Eden, though now experienced in fullness. Ian Dugan provides this wonderful description. God will no longer be worshipped here and there, wherever two or three are gathered together in the name of Christ, as strangers and aliens in a world which is not their home. There, he will be worshipped permanently on the heavenly mountain by the whole community of saints of all times and places, along with the heavenly hosts of angels and archangels. There, there will be no sin to be atoned for, no more weakness of the flesh to be mortified, no more forces of the evil one to be resisted, only the people of the king gathered in the presence of the king. To worship the King forever. Amen. We said at the outset, God's eternal purpose was to dwell among a people He has made His own. And and as we've seen, this purpose was revealed in the garden. And this purpose will be consummated in the city. But brothers and sisters... The astonishing truth is this. For the people of God now, redeemed by their Savior, this this is a reality now. God is a God. There's a lot of things we can say about God. He's omniscient. He's he's omnipresent. A lot of things we can say about God. But one thing we can say about God from the Bible. God desires to dwell with his people. The, script, the, the scripture from the first page to the end reveals God's eagerness to meet with and reveal himself to and dwell with his people. And considering our posture towards God apart from the cross, that is a breathtaking reality. Left to ourselves, we don't desire God. Apart from His grace and the gospel, we despise God. Apart from the work of the Spirit, we run from God. But God's disposition, it's different. God wants to dwell with His people. We can now pray with confidence because God desires to dwell with us. We can sing with confidence because God desires to dwell with us. We can lead our churches and lead our brothers and sisters in worship because why? God desires to dwell with us. And because, and only because, He has made this possible through the cross of Christ, whom one day we will worship for all eternity, face to face. 
Let's pray. Our Father in heaven. Lord, we know from your word that you dwell on a high and lofty place. We know that you and Dwell in unapproachable light. We know that no man can see you and live. We know you dwell in blazing holiness that necessarily opposes all evil. And those truths, Lord, only make more amazing to us another truth that you desire to dwell with your people. You who dwell as a trinity happily existing through all eternity in fullness of fellowship with mutual giving and receiving of love and honor within your own person, yet you want to dwell with us. So much so that you sent the eternal Son of God with whom you have enjoyed fellowship unbroken throughout all eternity. You sent Him He took on flesh. He set up a tent among us. He revealed you. And then he died. So that we would become yours. And so that you could dwell with us. Lord, wake us from our dull perceptions. Arrest our attention with your glorious purposes. And Lord, so fit us and work in us and illumine our hearts that we might delight in you. For you are worthy of all our affections and joy and passions and desires and worship and praise. And Lord, fit us that you might dwell evermore in fullness with us until that day we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Jeff Perswell, which was given at our Worship God 2006 conference and has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. 
Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planning and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.